0: Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Uh, Good morning. Thanks for tuning in with us uh, this morning. We're glad that you've joined us at Oak City Church. A couple quick announcements tonight. We're having our annual birthday and business meeting. We're going to do that in the parking lot. Um, we're going to be spaced out. It's, it's bring your own stuff. We're not sharing any food except some cupcakes. And, uh, and we're going to take some time and talk as a church family about what has been going on. Um, you know, kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly and pray for each other. Uh, we're also going to talk about where we're headed as a church and some things that your elders and leaders have been working on uh, that I think are exciting and you're going to want to hear about. So if you haven't signed up for that yet, go to the website, sign up for that. We'd love to have you join us tonight, but we need you to to sign up so we can get everybody in the right places. We will be live in person uh, next Sunday, so we're going to have a live service next Sunday. We'll also live stream that service, but we invite you to join us here um, at 10 o'clock in the building. You can sign up for that um, as well and reserve your spot for that. And then a few other things are going on. We have a camping trip that is usually just our elementary kids, but now it's the whole church, and we're going to have a drive-in movie in December, just some things. Uh, we're trying to, we're not going to be back to normal for a long time, you know, and there's a little bit of, of doing life and doing church feels a little bit like scraping and clawing, but it's worth it. And so we've got some some opportunities for you in the next few months, and we hope you take advantage of those. We've been in this series for uh, about two months now called Peter and Every Man's Guide to Spiritual Formation. And it's about how Peter's life reflects in some ways the track that all of our lives following Jesus look like. And it's helpful when you're on a path like that to know, you know, the path that you're on and have an idea of where you are on it and and have an idea of where the people around you are. So if there are people in front of you, you can lean on them for insight. And if there's people behind you, you can give them insight on where they might be headed. And so that's what we've been in. We're in stage five. So of six stages, we're in stage five. Next week, we're going to finish off the series. And I'm going to, um, start by preaching a story today out of the book of Acts that, that shows Peter in a pretty good stage five moment. And the story itself is an illustration. It's a crazy story. It illustrates the sovereignty of God and just how God is at work around us in ways um, that we can't always see or even imagine. Uh, but how Peter is willing and available to be a part of that, and that's a big part of the story. And how God might you know, be wanting to do crazy stuff in and through us, uh, but we got to let go of things a little bit, take our hands off the wheel, and, and in order to be able to engage that. And that's a bit of what stage four of the last few weeks was. There's some grief in stage four of we're not in control as much as we, we thought we were. Uh, and, and, and then that opens us up to some things that God might want to do. I'll say this about stage four it's not a foregone conclusion that people move through stage four. Last week, I mentioned that a temptation in stage four is to go back to stage three, to a time when you felt more productive, and and you don't wanna do that, but sometimes people get stuck in that. Uh, some people quit. They figure, well, if stuff doesn't you know, work the way it was supposed to in stage three, and I end up in this tough place in stage four, then the whole thing doesn't work, and they kinda crash out of it. Some people get rigid, and they live in the past, uh, but they stop growing, and they stop, you know, right where they are. And then other people, and this is what we're going to see in Peter, is they surrender in new and different ways to the Lord, and they get open to, to new and better things about what he wants to do in and through them. And that's the hope of moving on to stage five. So here's the story. It's Acts chapter 10. Uh, these, these verses will be on the screen, but if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up. Uh, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So Caesarea is a port city in Israel. Uh, it's, it's an important city. He, this guy, um, Cornelius, is a part of the Italian cohort. Um, and so he they're occupied by Rome and he is a Roman soldier, and, and part of the Italian cohort, and a centurion means he's kind of a big deal for the Romans. Um, he is described as one who fears God. That's a category in the Jewish community of someone who's not Jewish, but they fear Yahweh, and, and that's demonstrated. And so he's in that category, and, there, and it is respected by the Jewish people. And he generous, generously gives alms, gives of his finances to the people around him, and he prays. Continuously, so this guy is a God fearer. He uh, is generous with the stuff that he has, and he prays continuously. Like, but I'll be honest, if we can, <laughs> that that's better than most Christians are doing. You know, <laughs> like this is this guy's on top of it. And Cornelius is uh, an interesting character in the Bible because he gets to the questions that we all have. Like, you know, what about my neighbor who doesn't? you know, give Jesus the time of day, but they're like a better person than I am or than most of the Christians that I hang around with. Or what about the person that, you know, grows up in the middle of Timbuktu but never hears the name of Jesus? And Cornelius is one of a couple of stories in the Bible that show us that God is at work. Like, God's not limited by our, you know, ways of working. He's at work all around us, and sometimes we get a glimpse Uh, into that. One of my favorite books over the years is a book called Eternity in Their Hearts, and it's a story of Christian missionaries that go to, you know, around the world, and there are ways that God has set up a group of people to hear the gospel in really miraculous ways. You hear this a lot um, in the Muslim world, that Muslim folks will have a dream where Jesus came to them, and this is over and over and over. You, You hear this, and that is a big part of their story of coming to faith in Jesus. And Cornelius is in this category with Melchizedek and a few other characters um, in the Bible. And so God's at work, and God is just, and God knows what he's doing, and yet people need Jesus. Uh, I mean, Jesus says, I'm the way, the life, and the truth. No one comes to the Father but through me, and and God can be at work in a bunch of different ways. Uh, At the end of the day, at the end of the day, that's going to come through Jesus. And, And so this is one of those stories that speaks into this. Now, about the ninth hour of the day, He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at terror, stared at the angel in terror and said, what is it, Lord? Every time someone in the Bible sees an angel, they are terrified by it. This guy is a hardened Roman soldier, sees an angel and is terrified by the thing. Uh, He says to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who's called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So your, your alms, um, your prayers have ascended b- to God, and he's responding to them, to Cornelius. And the angel had spoken to him had departed. He called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. Having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And Joppa is a town just down the coast from Caesarea. Okay, so the next day— As they're on their journey and approaching the city, Peter goes up on a housetop uh, where he stands about the sixth hour to pray. So that's about noon, and he's going up to pray, and he became hungry. It's about time for lunch. He wants something to eat. But while they were preparing lunch, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. So he's hungry, and he starts having food dreams. And in that, God is answering those dreams, and God's like making him lunch. And so this, this, it comes down, and it, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And a voice came to him and said, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. So, so he has this dream, and the food that he would expect to come down is, is what we would now call kosher food. I mean, there are very specific food rules in the Old Testament that Jewish people, I mean, some to this day still adhere to, but in that day, all of them adhered to. And they were extremely strict. And the, the food that comes down in the sheet is all this food that they would consider unclean and they're not supposed to eat. And so Peter takes it as a bit of a test. Now these food rules, you hear about these every once in a while. And, and most of the time, honestly, you hear about them is you'll hear about some other rule that's reaffirmed in the New Testament, but people will lean into the Old Testament and say, well, the Old Testament says you shouldn't eat shellfish and we do that. And so why should we listen to this? But some of those rules in the Old Testament, were, were because of what God was doing in that time with the Israelites. And what he was doing in the law is he was setting them apart and letting them know that I have set you apart as a people, as a family, as a nation for my purposes. And he was giving them an idea of what it is to be clean and what it is to be unclean and what it is to be holy and what it is to be unholy. And part of that was teaching them um, that God is holy and that he wanted the Israelites to be holy like he is holy. But he told them, he told Abraham from the beginning, I'm setting you apart, I'm calling you as a nation, and through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So you're set apart, yeah, but you're set apart for the purpose of being a blessing to all the nations around you. Now, what happened is they got a bit insular in their thinking, and they remembered the part about them being blessed, but forgot about the part of them being a blessing to the people around them. And so by the time... Um, and we're going to see this in just a minute, like they don't play well with others because um, there's just an extreme racism between Jews and everybody else that's not uh, a Jewish person. And in some ways, you can see how that happens because um, they had to fight for everything they got. You know, the nations around them that God was going to use them to be a blessing to did not want them to be blessed (laughs) and fought tooth and nail to keep the Israelites from being blessed. And so you know, you get in that stage where you're constantly being attacked. This is a love your enemies thing, and you don't really want to love your enemies. Um, in the some segments of the church, and we fight against this, is we don't want to be so insular that we kind of hole up as a church or get in our bubble and make it an us versus them thing, because it's not that. God wants to use the church to be a blessing to the world around us. So they get this um, a bit mixed up, and so God says, rise, kill, and eat, and everything in Peter resists that command, because of these Old Testament laws. So Peter says, By no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, don't call common. It happened three times. That's significant for Peter. He has the three denials and the three reaffirmations. And here it's three times God speaks to him. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So the vision's over. Now, While Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry in town for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. So he gets done with this vision, and those guys coming down from Caesarea get there at the same time. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. You can see how God is orchestrating this in a way that only God can orchestrate this. Now, the next day, Peter rose. He went away with with these guys and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied Peter. And on the following day, he entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. He called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped Peter. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered there. But Peter just doesn't know what's going on, (laughs) doesn't know what he's doing there, doesn't know what to expect. And he said to him, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit with anyone of another nation. Like I said, they become very insular. There's a racism between them and anybody else. Um, you know, that I've talked about in times past. It's extreme. Uh, it's similar to things that we've experienced here uh, in our country. And, and so he, he tells them, you know I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> like, this is, I'm outside of my comfort zone in what I feel like God is calling me to do here. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent, I came without objection. And I asked then, Why you sent for me? Like, why am I here? This is so in these stages, you know, stage one is uh, the recognition of God. It's where you realize that God matters in my everyday life, He's personal, and Jesus was God on earth, and His life, death, and resurrection um, is is essential for me. I needed that to happen and you receive who Christ is and what he's done and you accept the gospel. Stage two, the life of discipleship is where your life starts getting shaped. Every aspect of your life you realize is shaped by the reality of the gospel. And, and so you start working through that. And stage three, you really start embracing your role as a disciple maker, um, either personally or through the processes of the church, like you engage in that um, and, and become a part of seeing other people being made disciples. And then stage four, the inward life, is where things don't make quite as much sense as they did in those earlier stages. And God's just taking you to a deeper place. Stage five is the journey outward. And that's where we see Peter, where he's holding things a little bit less loosely. He's okay with not being in control. Um, he's willing to trust that God, you know, God's going to do something crazy. This is These are some statements about stage five. We're aware of our faults. And we have a fresh desire to be in God's will rather than in our own will. We think a bit less of ourselves and a bit more of God. I thought about um, my old boss, my old pastor, and a few few years ago now, I was with him at a meeting and he said something that stuck with me. He said, you know, when I started the church, and this is 20-some years prior to that, he said, I thought I was good at like four or five things that would be really helpful to the church as we started it and grew. And he said, we got— I don't know, 10 or 15 years into it. And he said, I thought, man, I'm probably only good at two or three things, you know, and I need to get other people to do the, all the other things and just kind of get my hands out of it. And he said, then I got a little bit further along and I realized I'm probably only good at like one thing <laughs> and I need everybody else to, I just need to rely on other people to do this stuff because I'm good at this one thing. We're more, we're just more honest and open and it's okay, you know, that's okay with our limitations. And that's where Peter is. Um, another, another phrase, we feel weak at times, uh, vital, humble, patient, obedient, loving, and willing, willing words we might not have used earlier to describe ourselves. And that's true of Peter, like weak and humble and even obedient, willing, like aren't words you might have used to describe him earlier, but you describe him now. Uh, in stage two, we surrender to that life of which we are sure. In stage five, we surrender to that life purpose which we have yet to know, or understand. Things make more sense in stage two, and they make less sense in stage five, but we still surrender to them. At stage five, we at times may be very vulnerable and unclear about our lives and direction, but there's an inner peace and calmness about us that is mystifying. We know that in this very lack of clarity, God is showing us our call, and so we don't need as much clarity. God has gotten bigger, and we've gotten smaller. This scene starts with Peter on a rooftop, praying uh, because he's seeking God's direction, you know, Um, and now he's in foreign territory, but he's confident that God is with him. So in the scene, Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Um, To be honest, like that statement on its own uh, seems to run against the gospel in some ways, but you got to put it with everything that comes next. So he says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. He says, you guys have been here. You've been here during the whole thing. You know What happened with Jesus and how, like, how that's blowing up with the church? You guys have experienced it and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him, After he rose from the dead. Then he says, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter does not back down from the message of the gospel one bit. A lot of people pass through stage four and they end up watering down. Uh, the basic message of the gospel. And that's hard. Um, There are some things, and Ken goes through this in the theology class, that there's like everybody has a box within which they put the essential things. And in that language, you know, the box gets a little bit smaller. And there are some things that that are not central, the life, death, and resurrection gospel issues (laughs) that you probably hold a little bit more loosely after you pass through stage four But some people get rid of the box altogether, and Peter doesn't. Peter's crystal clear on what's in the box and and what matters. And so he preaches the life of Jesus and the power of God evident through the miracles that Jesus did. He preaches the death of Jesus, that he was hung on a cross, hung on a tree. And then he preaches the resurrection of Jesus and the reality that there's judgment uh, and that repentance is necessary. You know, I preached a few weeks ago about how an angry God in our culture is a hard sell. Probably always been a hard sell. Like we can get angry about anything we want to, but talk about God getting angry and people get angry, you know. But he says here, like there is judgment. Uh, Sin has consequences and someone's going to pay those. And that's the gospel that Jesus has paid the consequences for our sin in a way that we couldn't so that we could have his righteousness and have the, the promise of eternal life with God the Father, living out Christ's righteousness, you know. But then nece- there's a necessity to repent and to accept the reality of that and repent. And so Peter preaches all of that in stage five, and he and then he just trusts God with the results. He lays it out, uh, you know. He he doesn't know what it, this audience is because he's never been around these people before, and trusts God that is going to work with it. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. It it blew them away. This was the biggest controversy in the early church was, I mean, they they were so insular, they thought the gospel is only to the Jewish people. The church will be all Jewish people that have turned into Christians and not non-Jewish people. And here God is blowing their minds and saying, no, it's going to go to the ends of the earth. And all the people are going to come into this. For they were hearing them and speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Now, here are just three characteristics I see in stage five Peter that I don't think you saw um earlier, uh, when we interact with Peter. And here's, here's the first one. Peter is available for whatever God wants to do. He's available. Um, are we, are you on a scale of one to 10? How available are you, you know, for God to say, Hey, I, I want to do something crazy. <laughs> it may be that God, and we don't limit God, you know, but that God would do more crazy stuff if we were available and paying attention to him to do more crazy things. Like I said, at the beginning of the scene, and I've never noticed this about this story before, and it's convicting for me. At the beginning of the scene, he is on the rooftop just praying and just seeking God's will. He's not meeting with a group of people and scheming. He's not got a whiteboard someplace. He's not reading a book. He's praying and asking God for, for direction. And, um, and that's somebody who has become more confident in God's ability than they are in their own ability. And I don't think that's something that we would have said about Peter um, earlier. I think that's part of what stage four burns out of you. And there's almost a grief in that, that I'm not what I thought I was. And I don't have the capacity to control the way I thought I did, but it leaves you in this place where you're available for God to use you in different ways. And that is counter to our culture. You know, we like, Bold, self-confident <laughs> leaders, and and this is a this is a bold, God-confident leader. But he doesn't look quite as bold as he looked before. And it's not just this incident. Um, earlier in Acts, he gets arrested a couple times. He and John get arrested, and they go before the council, and and the council's like, okay, we're gonna let you guys go, but you gotta stop talking about Jesus. And he's like, well. I I don't know. You guys be the judge. If you guys told me to do something and God told me to do something, who would you listen to? But for me, I'm listening to God. And so they beat him up and they sent him away. And then he gets arrested again. And things have gotten more intense. Uh, James, the brother of John, has been executed. And so everybody thinks that's what they're going to do with Peter, another church leader. So he gets arrested and they have four squads of soldiers that guard him. You should read the book of Acts over and over. It's such a great book. And And then God miraculously gets him out of prison, and Peter doesn't even believe it. He thinks it's a vision until he's on the street. He's like, oh man, God let me out. So he goes to the house where the church had been meeting um, and praying for him because they thought he was going to get executed. He knocks on the door, and Rhoda, the servant girl, comes, and she's so excited about it being Peter that she forgets to open the door, and she goes back to the people, and she says, hey guys, Peter's here. And they're like, Peter can't be here. He's in jail. That's why we're praying. Like, it's so honest about the church, and they're just like us that they'll pray for stuff, but not really believe that God's going to do it. But God does it anyway. You know, I was talking to somebody this week or last week, and they were talking about, you know, a difficult situation in life that had taken a turn for the better. And they were really honest. I appreciate it. So I would say that God answered, you know, there was God that did it, but we didn't, I didn't really pray about it. And I was like, yeah, someone else is probably praying about it. You know, uh, just God is doing these, these big things, and, and Peter is available. To to walk down those roads and putting himself in, in difficult situations, um, he devotes. So he later in the New Testament, there's a few letters, the epistles of Peter, First and Second Peter, and you see this in those letters. So here's one section of First Peter, chapter two. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? So if you do something bad, you experience the consequences. No big deal. He says, but if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure. If when you do good, it leads to you suffering, and you just keep doing good. Uh, That's a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Christ committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, like Peter has mellowed out a bit from early Peter in this passage, uh, you remember how severely Peter resisted the cross. You know when Jesus starts talking about it, he's like, "I'm not going to let that happen to you." And uh, when they when the guards come in in the garden, he cuts off one of his ears. You know, like he's just not letting this happen. But now that thing has shaped him, like he's seen how Jesus. Suffered, And so he says, we should know that we're going to suffer. And Jesus didn't resist that because Jesus knew what was going to come out of that. And so we shouldn't resist it, but we should trust ourselves to God. And so he makes himself available to some really difficult things, believing that God's going to work through it. And the question for us is, are we? Are we? Are we holding on too tight? Um, And we're not. And God isn't big enough. That we think he's going to work through those things. I think that's part of stage five. Here's another part: Peter is patient with God's timing. Uh, so, early Peter, when Jesus is walking the earth, you know, a couple scenes. One I just referenced, when um, when Peter says, "On this rock I'll build my church; gates of hell won't stand against it," and then Jesus says that, and then Jesus, and then Jesus starts talking about the cross. It's almost like he's got. The, the building blocks for the church in place and the church is gonna carry on the mission so Jesus is gonna start talking about the cross and Peter says, Hey, I won't let that happen to you. And it's like Peter thinks, okay, I'm in charge of this thing now. You're passing it over to me, so I gotta protect you. And and Jesus is like, you don't get it, you know? Uh, Jesus is gonna is gonna in that time frame give a give a talk to his disciples where he says, the rulers of the Gentiles, like lord it over them and exercise authority over them. they're kind of heavy-handed and controlling but that's not what it's going to be like with you Um, the greatest among you will be your servant you know and and that's that's what's going to define greatness among your type of leaders and peter's growing into that right after that scene where jesus says on this rock i'll build my church he takes them up on what's called the mount of transfiguration he takes up peter james and john And Jesus is like shown in his glory and Moses and Elijah show up and Peter's like, hey, let's, let's make some tents up here. We'll just hang out up here. Let's just stay here. This is good. And Peter's that guy. He's an idea guy. Uh, He's a a pretty natural leader. And as soon as he's got an idea, you know about it. And unless somebody resists it real strongly, like that's what you're going to end up doing. And Jesus does in that case, but that's just how he is. Um, Before Jesus goes to the cross. We went through this a couple weeks ago. Peter says, I'll never deny you. Those guys might deny you, but I'll never deny you. He's supremely confident. But you see that change in this Peter. And there's just a different type of patience. Uh, he is previously chomping at the bit. He is a no filter. He's an all gas, no break kind of guy. And, um, and you know, that's admired in any culture and in our culture. Um Listen, if you've been around and you know me, this isn't going to be, be a surprise to you. But I, as it, in, when it comes to the disciples, I probably relate more to John than I do to Peter. You know, I wish I had a little bit more Peter, and and a lot of times, so do the people that work around me. Wish I had a little bit more of that. Um, and I try and surround myself with with folks that are more Peterish. You know, but because there's something admirable about that. But but not unless it's tempered by Jesus. <laughs> and what we see in stage five is a Jesus or a Peter that's been tempered. By Jesus, this is from Second Peter, um, and just evidence of patience. So he's he's talking to these folks about how things might get hard and and the critics that you might experience, the resistance, and he says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, and so that is like Peter's way of saying, hey, haters gonna hate, you know, scoffers gonna scoff, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise? of his coming. You know, Jesus said, I'm coming back. And they'll say, well, where is he? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so Peter's saying, like, that's going to be the critique that Jesus said he's coming back. Where is he? And that's a fair question. You know, they're asking that 30, 50 years after Jesus uh, ascended into heaven. And 2,000 years, we're still asking that question. But man, that is a Peter question. That is an impatient That's a question you'd expect him to be asking. You know, like, all right, Jesus, you said you're coming back. It's been like 20 minutes. Where are you? Uh, But now he's not. He just has a different perspective on that. And so he continues, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was flooded with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment. And destruction of the ungodly. And so he's putting things in this longer term perspective of it's not about just right now. Like God's been at work for a long time and God's got work that he's going to do in the future. So just be patient. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years are like one day. That is a patient statement. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's patient. And you you get to that type of patience with others only by knowing and like really working through just how patient the Lord has been with you. And that is some stage four looking in the mirror not always liking what you see, but realizing God's grace for you. Um, you know, there's a saying that that goes around the church that you're more sinful than you ever imagined, but more loved than you ever dared hope. And stage four gives you a master's degree on that. And so he's become more patient with others because he understands how patient God has been with him. And there's a degree of humility that should come from walking with Jesus that he demonstrates. The end of, the Cornelius story, you know, the Holy Spirit comes down, and he baptizes these folks. Well, then Peter goes to Jerusalem, back to the church uh, from Caesarea, and the circumcision party, it says, criticized him. So those are the folks that think, well, the church is only going to be for Jewish people. And and he starts, they start piling on him, like, well, how could you do that, you know, with these these Gentile folks saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began to explain it to them in order. So he just goes through the whole story and that's what's listed in Acts, the whole story again with Cornelius. And then he says, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how Jesus said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Who was I that I could stand in God's way? He knows this isn't about him. It's about what God wants to do, and that's not always going to make sense to him. And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And God was able to use Peter to change the trajectory of the church, and that's why we're here today, because this happened, you know. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So he's available. He's patient. um, But his focus stays the same. He is just as focused on bringing people to faith in Christ. He doesn't lose confidence in the gospel. He may lose confidence in himself, but he gains confidence in the gospel. So this is from 1 Peter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. I said last week, you know, part of stage four is you start thinking forward because you're kind of dis, you know, disillusioned with the things that are here and you realize that it's not going to achieve the way that you wanted it. You're not going to get completely there and that's because you're not made for this world, you know. You're longing for the more and he's, he's pointing forward to the more. He doesn't get to a place of saying, well, I put my time in at church. Check, did that. I'm going to, you know, go on to other pursuits. He doesn't become less focused. He doesn't let himself get distracted by a million hobbies, um, he gets more focused and he goes deeper with the gospel. And then one last little passage here from 1 Peter 3, he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. It's like it's a life shaped around. Um, making disciples. But always be ready. Live your life in that way. But do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's such a just a huge verse in concept that, you know what, like Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble, but don't fear because I've overcome the world. And you will. And Peter, Peter is like, don't fight it. You know, like don't make it about you. Don't make it a, an us versus them type of thing because then you screw up what's between them and God. But you just love your enemies and and follow the example of Jesus. And then when people, you know, slander you and there's no basis to it and you don't defend yourself because you don't need to because your confidence is in Jesus and in the Lord and who he says you are and not what anybody else says you are, then they're going to be convicted that they're in the wrong, and deep down they're going to know that, and that's going to be between them and God. And man, that is um, a focus and a confidence and a willingness to do whatever it takes um, for God for God to to get His work done. You know, uh, there's a there's a section from this this book that I'm going to read because he's almost passive there, and so this is one of the things they say about stage five. When we love people, despite their having failed miserably in our society and for whatever reason, we're called naive. When we stay with the grieving, we're considered caretakers. When we give money away, we're considered poor managers. When we yield, we're considered non-competitive. When we let go, we're considered weak. When we just don't fit with the realistic expectations of a world that is out to be productive and to win. Even the productive Christians at earlier stages in our journey think we at stage five have lost our edge. And that can be part of what happens in stage five is you look like there's something passive, but it's really not. Like you're trusting in the Lord more than you are in yourself. And that only happens when God gets bigger. You know, as John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. And that's part of just growing and maturing in Christ. Your identity, security, your value, your hope, all those things are tied up in Christ and so you don't need to obsess so much over yourself. And, man, that's, that's freedom. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end. I don't do this often, but um, I'm going to end with a, a poem that a couple pastor friends had sent me a few, few weeks ago. I don't, don't want to give you any illusions that I read lots of poetry. I don't, uh, I don't read any poetry. I bought some poetry books thinking, preacher, this might help you with your preaching. I just can't do it. So this is a poet, poem called If by Rudyard Kipling. I I knew that name, but I thought he was the guy that wrote It Was the Night Before Christmas. But that was Washington Irving that I was confused him with, but he didn't even write that. This guy, Rudyard Kipling, did do the Jungle Book, so there you go. Um, But it's a great little poem about maturity, about maturity. And in it, like, I see a lot of characteristics of what it's like to be in stage five. So this is what he says. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there's nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it and which is more You'll be a man, my son. Father, stage five, all this is about maturity and, um, and growing in you and growing up in you and becoming the person that you've created us to be. And it's about um, there being less of us and more of you. It's about um, not needing to be in control of all the things, not because the things aren't important, but because you've told us that you were in control of those things. And so our focus isn't on the things and our focus isn't on ourselves, but our focus is on you. I pray for us, Lord, um, as a church, that as a church, I think there are a lot of people that have been walking with you for a long time that that know stage four, um, that we would grow into a healthy, beautiful stage five that is available to you and seeking you uh, and desiring to see you do crazy things in the lives of the people around us because we've gotten out of the way and um, and surrendered in new ways to your work father we love you we thank you that you love us